How does a magic orphan son of a seeker and a mudblood trap? In the middle of a forgotten spot and little whinging by Dumbledore impoverished and squalor, grow up to be our hero Harry Potter? Find out on the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter Book Club for Federalists. When little Harry Potter got the better of You Know Who, all You Know Who's supporters was tracked down, wasn't they, Ern? Most of them knew it was all over with You Know Who gone, and they came quiet. But not Sirius Black. I heard he thought he'd be second in command once you-know-who had taken over. Anyway, they cornered Black in the middle of a street full of muggles. And Black took out his wand and he blasted half the street apart. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Alex has been wanting to use that intro since we started this podcast. Yeah, uh, actually, that's the first thing I thought of before even doing Harry Potter podcast. You are constantly making parody songs, and lately, well, not lately, for the past probably two years, virtually all those parody songs have been to Hamilton. I'm into Great Comet now, though, so get ready for some Great Comets. God, that's so much more obscure even than Hamilton. It's not obscure. It's on the most best Broadway musicals The most best list? The most best lists. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, never mind. I understand. No, all the like top 10 plays, uh, Great Comet is up there. So. Oh, I just didn't understand the syntax of that sentence, but now I see it. It's a thing. Hi. Hello. It's 2017, where we wish you Happy New Year's in the movie mini, but. Happy New Year again. Year again. Yeah, we recorded that like a couple of hours ago, so yeah, it's if we all sound New Year- exactly the same. Yeah, it's all New Year's Eve. This is how. No, it's today is sorry, New, Year's Day. New Year's Day. It's all New Year's Day. This is how we're spending our we're holiday. Spending our holiday recording Harry Potter podcasts. And guess what? We are now reading our favorite Harry Potter book. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We are exceedingly stoked to be on book three. This book is so good. I know. And then it's all downhill from there. False. No, that's They're not, all good. That's not true at but all. But this They're one is good. a high point. This one is a true high point. So this week we're reading chapters called Owl Post, Aunt Marge's Big Mistake, and The Night Bus. On this podcast, you will hear cursing. You will also hear spoilers. For this and future Harry Potter books, if you've made it this far with us, you probably know both of those things, but we have to keep warning you, especially of the cursing. If you're listening with kids, don't. Um, also, you're going to find out what happens. Unless we- that's, you're cool with that as a parent. because I'm, Yeah, I'm know. not going to police your parenting. Yeah. If that's- you're listening with kids and it's... They hear cursing in their lives. Yeah, yeah. fuck yeah. yeah. More they, power They to might them. not want to say that at school. Whatever. They I, might not want to be, I've been listening to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Fucking Azkaban. <laughs> I hope they don't to say their that. teacher. That'd be unpleasant for they're, you. Just, yeah. You get a note home. They're just like, fuck the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, but if you are listening <laughs> with kids and you don't want those kids to hear cursing, uh, don't <laughs> listen with them. You're going to also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are masturbation metaphors birthday stress, bloating, overly boozy family dinners, having to take the bus, and true crime. Masturbation. (laughs) What happened this week? Well, in this week's chapters, we start a new book. Harry doesn't know that because he's not aware of the fact that he's in a seven book series. 
Um, That's actually a whole other conversation yeah. <laughs> about like metafiction. What Does if, Harry know he's the what if there were protagonist these of these Krantz books? and Guildenstern kind of characters that uh, that knew they were they in don't, the canon? They don't know either in that play, do they? No. Sorry, I don't know much about metafiction. Whatever. Anyway, yes, Harry doesn't know it's a new book, but Harry does know that it is once again his birthday. Yes. Go on. In these, in this week's chapters, Harry is back at his horribly abusive aunt and uncle's house on Privet Drive in Little Winging, Surrey. He's super bummed out because... Well, actually, he's not bummed out. He's lying in bed under the covers with a flashlight on, doing something he's not supposed to, and hoping Uncle Vernon doesn't hear him, which is reading the history of magic. He learns some interesting things about witch burnings in the 14th... I think it's the 14th century. Maybe it's the 15th century. Uh, then he realizes... He looks at the clock. He realizes, boom... I'm motherfucking 13 years old. He's kind of thinking that he's bummed because he never gets birthday presents and his aunt and uncle literally wish he were dead. But then some owls show up. Three owls show up. Errol the owl being supported by Hedwig and a Hogwarts school owl. They bring him some really fucking sweet birthday cards from his friends, Ron and Hermione and Hagrid. We learn that the Weasleys have won we learned that the weasleys have won 700 galleons and they spent the money to go on vacation in egypt to visit their eldest child bill weasley who's a curse breaker for gringotts bank ron has enclosed a newspaper clipping about arthur weasley winning this uh the daily profit galleon draw i'm getting the signal to uh speed well, up a you're bit just, so like, saying everything that no happens. i'm down the yeah i could just read you the book for the next uh <laughs> 90 minutes, but I would not be as good as Jim Dale. Anyway, birthday presents are received, but the next day at breakfast, Harry learns that Aunt Marge is coming to visit. Aunt Marge is a real beezy. She's got a bulldog named Ripper, who's double beezy, double beezy bulldog. Aunt Marge comes to... Oh, also, sorry, rewinding a bit, Harry receives a message from school that third years at Hogwarts will be allowed to visit Hogsmeade, which is this super sweet all-wizarding village. We'll learn later that it has the most badass candy shop literally in existence. Harry needs to get a permission slip to visit Hogsmeade, but he realizes he has to get this past Uncle Vernon. So anyway, Aunt Marge's visit is at once a challenge and an opportunity because Uncle Vernon says, Harry, you gotta behave yourself when Aunt Marge... Well, not, not behave yourself, but like sublimate your personality into nothingness when Anne Marge uh, comes to visit. So Harry's like, I don't know, gonna be hard to pretend that I'm sent to this criminal asylum for nine months out of the year and, you know, generally do what Uncle Vernon wants me to, but I will play along with your crazy fantasy if you sign my permission slip. So Uncle Vernon grudgingly agrees. Aunt Marge comes to visit... Harry does his best to stay, I don't know what, like, just keep things on the DL. Like, you know, Harry does his best to fly under the radar. But then Aunt Marge does what so many people in Harry's life eventually end up doing for God knows why and says, your parents deserve to die, Harry, uh, basically. Actually, it's way worse than that. He compares his mother to a female dog. And uh, finally, one night over a very drunken final dinner 
they have a fancy dinner for Aunt Marge, in which Uncle Vernon plies Aunt Marge with like more and more brandy. Finally, Aunt Marge goes too far. What's the what's the like final straw? It's not the bitch and pup thing. It's like uh. Oh, um, she says that they were probably drunk and that they died in a car accident. And he said they didn't got, die in a car accident and she calls him a liar. And... Right, right. Anyway, uh, Harry loses his temper and Aunt Marge starts to slowly inflate. Her fingers become sausage-like and she rises off the ground and, like, yeah, she blows up. So Harry's, like, going full on, like, not quite carry status, but, like, 25% of the way there. Uh, Harry grabs all his stuff, flees the house because he realizes he's done magic. Harry then contemplates his life as a fugitive because he's sure that the Ministry of Magic is going to outlaw him for breaking the decree, the reasonable decree against underage... I can't remember the, like, weird wizard... I think it's the decree for the reasonable reasonable restriction of underage sorcery. Harry then sees what he thinks is a giant hulking dog in the darkened streets of suburban England. The night bus shows up because Harry's stuck out his wand, hitchhiker-like. Inadvertently, the night bus shows up. It's uh, transportation for the stranded witcher wizard. It's purple. There's this kind of downscale dude named Stan Shunpike, um, who, I don't know, he's like, he's not really the conductor. He's like the, uh, he's like this kind of wizard concierge. Harry has the night bus take him to the Leaky Cauldron in London. He uses the pseudonym Neville Longbottom, which is just really funny to me. I laughed out loud uh, when he did this. The first word that comes into his mind because Harry Sherry's a fugitive. Gets off the night bus. Who else is at the Leaky Cauldron but the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, who's apparently been looking for Harry. Cornelius Fudge takes Harry into a private room in the Leaky Cauldron for some tea and crumpets and says... Yo, don't worry about it. We don't send people to Azkaban for blowing up their ants. Like, all is cool. Oh, also all that? Like, man, I thought this would be a snitch to get through, but... A like, snitch? Oh, a cinch. <laughs> <laughs> all this time, there's been a breakout from Azkaban prison. It's the prisoner of Azkaban that this book is named after. A fellow named Sirius Black. He's so bad, he's even on the Muggle News. He's also in the Daily Prophet. And we learned that Sirius Black was a serious supporter of you-know-who, Lord Voldemort. And after Voldemort's downfall, he committed this crazy massacre in which he killed uh, 12 muggles and a wizard. So... Now he's out. He's on the yeah, loose. That's, that's, that's a foot. And uh, so... Oh, a foot. The game's a... Yeah, bad game is a foot. Uh, anyway, Cornelius Fudge seems extremely relieved to have found Harry, checks him in, he recommends that he check into uh, the Leaky Cauldron, and uh, things are pretty much fine for Harry, but Harry's like, man, this was like just a crazy night. We very adorably closed the chapter with Harry telling Hedwig it's been a crazy it's day. Been a we- he said, it's been a weird night. I love that moment. It's so cute. He's just talking to his bird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because Hedwig has somehow figured out that Harry's at the League of Cauldron. Hedwig's and, a uh, genius. Yeah, checks in. So anyway. Hedwig checks in too. Yep. I love the beginning of this book. I do too. I mean, the first paragraph, it's like Star Wars crawl good. Yeah, read it to us. I'm and I'm going to. Yeah, We're not the, even going to play Jim Dale. Alex yeah, is just the first read paragraph this to us. of this book is Star Wars. Like it just plunges you right back into the world of Harry Potter, and as you read it, you're just thinking, it's "There's so an am- there's an amazing adventure 
coming my way. Yep. So, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 1, I'll post. Harry Potter was a highly unusual boy in many ways. For one thing, he hated the summer holidays more than any other time of year. For another, he really wanted to do his homework, but was forced to do it in secret, in the dead of night. And he also happened to be a wizard. It opened so well, I just, I had like a stupid grin plastered to my face <laughs> the whole time I was doing the the reading and prep for this week. It's, I mean, I don't actually really know what more there is to say other than this book is so, it's, you know, okay, this is one of the things I really like about it is it's the first book where she largely dispenses with the need to do a lot of backstory. No, she, does a, she does a ton. Right, but it's like it's so much tighter than it is right. in the last books. Like well, the, the fourth, well, and we'll talk about this when we get to the beginning of the fourth. The fourth books where she really just throws out the I'm not even going to explain the fact that he's a wizard. It's like if you're not here right now, catch up. Right, which because it would be crazy to start on book four. Right, but even in this one, I feel like there's a lot less exposition and a lot more immediate immersion into Harry's mind and Harry's experiences. Yeah, yeah. Which is great because Harry is now like on the cusp of young adulthood. Yeah, he's an adolescent in he's for real. Ready for YA fiction. He is. So it's nice to immediately go straight into that mind. I don't know what else to say about the the beginning is just like every single one of these scenes is so good. Like Aunt Marge blowing up is amazing. The night bus is so funny and weird. Yeah, I know. I just got to the end of these three chapters and I was like, all right, J.K. Rowling is C.S. Lewis. She's J.R.R. Tolkien. She's Lloyd Alexander. Like, she joins the ranks of yes. your British, your, the great right English off the bat, writer, like writers in English of books for children. Of books for children. Or books for young people. Yeah, this is the book where this series gets extraordinary. Yeah. Like, the first two books are great, and we've had a rollicking good time with this whole thing, but these first three chapters, you're just like, I am here for whatever happens. Like, I am never, ever, ever leaving this world. This book is so good. As I've said in many of these episodes, during my weird Harry Potter ban in my teens, this book is so good. My sister insisted on reading it to me and just followed me around reading me the whole of Prisoner of Azkaban. Well, I was playing, I think, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time on the Nintendo 64. She read the whole thing out loud to you? Yes, the entire book out loud to me. That's actually adorable. Yeah. That's so, so Thanks, cute. Annie. And I was like, oh, this book is amazing. Yeah. And that's when she started to break through Thank my God. Harry Potter embargo. Um, well, book three is a really good place to do that because, damn, I'm so excited. Okay, let's actually start talking about it. All right. Let's start with a very, very fan favorite segment. Enchanted Economics. Let's do the numbers. So usually it's the first few chapters that we get in each Harry Potter book that we get another glimpse into the wizarding economy because it's when they have to go to Diagon Alley to buy the school things. Harry usually has to take a withdrawal at Gringotts Wizarding Bank. And this book is no exception. So... What have we learned about the wizarding economy from these first few chapters? Well, the Weasleys, for once in their life, have come into some money. Arthur Weasley wins the daily profit 
grand prize. There's like an annual galleon draw. And he wins 700 galleons, which Ron says he uses to fund their vacation to Egypt. Harry couldn't think of anyone who deserved to win a large pile of gold more than the Weasleys, who were very nice and extremely poor. He picked up Ron's letter and unfolded it. Dear Harry, happy birthday. Look, I'm really sorry about that telephone call. I hope the muggles didn't give you a hard time. I asked Dad and he reckons I shouldn't have shouted. It's amazing here in Egypt. Bill's taken us around all the tombs, and you wouldn't believe the curses those old Egyptian wizards put on them. Mum wouldn't let Ginny come in the last one. There were all these mutant skeletons in there, of muggles who'd broken in and grown extra heads and stuff. I couldn't believe it when Dad won the Daily Prophet draw. Seven hundred galleons, most of it gone on this trip, but they're going to buy me a new wand for next year. So, 700 Galleons. Based on our first episode, Wizarding Exchange Rate of 25 cents to one canut, 700 Galleons is roughly $86,000. Oh my god. (laughs) Wait, that's so much money. Yeah, I mean, based on the fact that the Weasleys are poor as fuck, that's probably like two years' salary. That's at least a year's salary for Arthur Weasley. Maybe two years' salary if he makes, like, 43K, which, I mean, that'd be rough to raise a family of nine people. I mean... So maybe it's one year salary. Anyway, well, I'll, yeah. Um, well, here's how Ron describes it. So the Weasleys are cash poor most of the time. They come into $86,000, and they spend most of it on a family vacation. One trip. One trip. Also, they're gone for a month. They go on a really long... <laughs> I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've gone on a trip that lasted one month, maybe ever, definitely since I was a young child. I still don't know how they got through 86K. How do you spend, well, Well, they buy they buy a wand for Ron, which we established earlier is roughly $800. Which is US. not a huge proportion of that 86000 <laughs> That is not a lot of money compared to how much money they won. Uh, does Arthur have a gambling problem? The fact that they spend eighty six grand on a single trip, I f- the, earlier on you feel bad for the Weasleys for being so poor, but now I'm like, oh my god, are you guys horrifying with money? Is that the problem? Maybe he's not underpaid. I mean, unless our wizarding exchange rate is wrong, which it might be, but I don't know. He's eight hundred dollars seemed cheap to me for a wand. Our exchange which does rate everything has made sense so far. Like, right. So our wizarding exchange rate is based on the price of the daily profit, which is five canuts. So we ballparked maybe a dollar twenty-five because it's not like the Sunday edition; it's not like the two fifty edition. The basic daily profit is five canuts, and that's about how much the New York Times cost um, just for a regular edition the year that this came out. Right, and it's twenty-nine canuts to a sickle, four hundred ninety-three canuts to a galleon, which comes out to a a galleon is one hundred twenty-three dollars and sixty cents. So seven hundred galleons is. A little more than $86,000, <laughs> which is what the Weasleys won. I mean, that's not the lottery, but if you're like financially stressed, that makes a big, that would make a big difference. It also seems like you could go on a baller family vacation. For maybe 10K. For 10 grand. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have 73000 left. Like it's maybe, I hate to say this because like I deeply trust Ms. Rowling's 
world building abilities it's possible she didn't think that hard about how much this money is worth well also 700 galleons is that is so much more money than it makes sense to win in like a newspaper drawing yeah it's not 100k but even but yeah. so, does have you ever seen a newspaper that has $83,000 to give away to a reader? It seems like it would be like a $1,000 prize. A major media company might have. To randomly like, yeah, give so. away? Yeah, yeah, you're That's right. That's so much money. My other question is, what were they spending the money on? How do they get to Egypt? They're not paying for airline tickets for I have no idea how people. wizards travel internationally anyway. The right. only is time the we flu really... network connected to Egypt? If you think about it, the only time we see international travel in these books is when the Beaubaton and the Durmstrang students it... come and they take a... giant ass ships. Like a flying house. And a flying house driven by monster horses. <laughs> the Weasleys are doing neither the, of those the things. The drink single malt whiskey. Yeah, uh, so maybe that costs $86,000 <laughs> to bring the entire Beaubaton contingent right. in we, their giant house carriage we, with whiskey-drinking horses. We don't know much about international travel, although if we go way outside the books to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, Newt Scamander arrives in the U.S. on a muggle ocean liner. Okay, so maybe they... Basically piggyback on Muggle international transportation. Well, perhaps. Oh, so clearly Newt can't apparate from the United Kingdom to the U.S. There must be some kind of geographic limit or distance. Yeah, or there's either a barrier or there's a limit on like the distance, distance that a person can apparate. I know that travel can be really, really expensive. And I know I'm sounding like a really solidly like lower middle class currently person by being like, how do you spend $86,000 on a trip? Like clearly it's possible. But it doesn't seem like the Weasleys are having the kind of trip that's that expensive. Put that into savings, Arthur. Oh my god. Although savings is literally the only thing you can have because everyone pays in cash. Right, but put it in Gringotts. <laughs> like, it's just... There's no point putting in Gringotts, though, because you can't invest it. Yeah, but it, you can spend it on things you actually need later. Right. Well, they bought Ron a new wand, which, thank God. Yeah, right. Ron's his last wand, wand almost killed someone. Obliterated, it did, it killed his mind. Yeah. Ron's wand obliterated Gilderoy Lockhart's brain. Actually, Ron's wand got them in a lot of trouble in the last book, and they should have replaced it right away. And if they had put this money in Gringotts, they would have been saving <laughs> for a rainy day, like when stupid fucking Ron breaks his wand again. Question two related to the wizarding economy. Bill Weasley works as a curse breaker in Egypt and for Gringotts for Gringotts Bank and he appears to be he appears to be breaking curses on Egyptian tombs because there's a Ron tells Harry about all the crazy curses that the ancient Egyptian wizards put on things which kind of adds a weird exotic orientalist element to the uh Is Bill Weasley a grave robber? I mean that's what it seems like. Yeah. It seems like... That doesn't seem like it should be an actual professional job for it a seems, bank. It seems like Gringotts Bank is stripping Egyptian tombs of gold because the entire wizarding world runs on the gold standard. I mean, they're not even mining. They're just like raiding ancient treasures is what I, how I interpreted it. That's how I interpreted it too. So, I mean, that's pretty fucked up. Okay, there's so many like cultural appropriation <laughs> issues. There's, like, so many problems with, like, ownership. Can you imagine if regular-ass England was, like, the way we're going to shore up our economy is just by stealing Egyptian gold? Yeah, yo, that's, like, what Spain did in the 17th century. Or, uh... Yeah, we're still <laughs> fucking making up for that shit. That's called <laughs> colonialism. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. my God. What is going on there? What is going on? Anyway, uh, I have a few more economics things later in the episode, but uh, that wraps up this segment. Well, I mean, the main issue economics. the main issue is that the Weasleys are horrible money managers. Yeah. Clearly. Terrible with money. It's insane that they spent their entire windfall on a single trip. That's crazy. Yeah. Not a good plan. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you said this at the top of the episode because I actually never think about this as the source of the book's title. But um, we meet Sirius Black. Immediately. Through media appearances. Mm -hmm. And he is indeed the prisoner of Azkaban. Harry sat down between Dudley and Uncle Vernon, a large, beefy man with very little neck and a lot of moustache. Far from wishing Harry a happy birthday, none of the Dursleys made any sign that they had noticed Harry enter the room, but Harry was far too used to this to care. He helped himself to a piece of toast and then looked up at the reporter on the television, who was halfway through a report on an escaped convict. The public is warned that Black is armed and extremely dangerous. A special hotline has been set up, and any sighting of Black should be reported immediately. No need to tell us he's no good, snorted Uncle Vernon, staring over the top of his newspaper at the prisoner. Look at the state of him, the filthy layabout. Look at his hair. He shot a nasty look sideways at Harry, whose untidy hair had always been a source of great annoyance to Uncle Vernon. So first he appears on Muggle News. Which I love. Right. Um, which gives you a sense of the scope of his crimes and how dangerous he actually is. What's well, a bit of a throwback to sometimes things ha are so big in the wizarding world that they have these weird ripples in the Muggle world. And it's a bit of a throwback to Uncle Vernon seeing just all the weird shit that's going on after the downfall of Lord Voldemort. It's true. And Uncle Vernon... He's weirdly perceptive because he picks up on the fact that the news doesn't mention where he broke out of. Right. And Uncle Vernon wants to know. Right. Do so, you think he knows? Do you think he has a sense? He does. I don't think so at all, but he has, uh, not consciously, but he knows something is funny because he's yells at the TV. He says, well, where the hell did this guy break out of? He could be coming up the street right now, which is actually true. He is. Because the Grim is, uh... It's not actually the Grim, it's just a regular dog. Yeah, well, the dog, uh, you know, Padfoot, is on um, whatever the, what's the name of the, like, Magnolia. One Street Over. Magnolia Crescent. And so Harry he's literally season. coming at the mm -hmm. street right now. That's actually hilarious. Yeah. Oh, my God. Props to JK for that. So, you know. It's, I like that Uncle Vernon is often the kind of muggle portal through which the wizarding world reaches us. You're right. It's a really interesting mirror of the first scenes of the first book. Right. Where Uncle Vernon is like, Something is wrong. People are being weird. I don't love it. And the lack of control I have over my life is going to be an interesting entree into the wizarding world. Like, Vernon is not stupid. He's just bad. You're right. He's not stupid. He's actually really, really, really fucking on top of it. No, Vernon pays, like, so does Petunia, really. They mm -hmm. pay an eagle-eyed amount of attention. Right. Well, Harry says that Petunia would be psyched if she could find Sirius Black. Yeah, if she was the one to call the tip line. Mm-hmm. And, well, the other interesting mirror is, so Vernon immediately assumes that Sirius Black is guilty. Yeah. Because he's been imprisoned and he breaks out. So Vernon has this kind of, like, Vernon has this innate trust in, like, the criminal justice system. That once someone has been convicted and thrown in prison, that they're immediately guilty. And he even says, hanging is the best. That's uh, actually a really good, it's such a short throwaway line. Yeah. But it's such a 
perfect window into Vernon's soul. The kind of person that loves to talk about how not only should the death penalty exist, but like the death penalty is truly the only way to deal with anybody who's done anything wrong. Like that's such a perfect encapsulation of how, like of Vernon's worldview. Right. Hanging, and hanging specifically is like so medieval. It's actually funny because it fits in with more of a wizard conception Mm -hmm. of criminal justice because presumably in the year 2000 in England I don't think they hang people anymore I mean I think they <laughs> no they do not first hang. of all I don't just the death penalty doesn't exist they don't in have the, the but even Kingdom. in yeah. the US like we, oh, yeah, we don't have people. a fucking barbaric system and we don't even hang people so he wants to return to this kind of like you know post like witch burning well the Dursleys are specifically referred to as medieval in the first chapter yeah it's true um they are introduced as having extremely, quote, medieval, unquote, attitudes toward magic because Harry... Has just been reading about witch burning mm-hmm. in the in, in, in yeah. medieval... But what's interesting to me is not that Vernon, in his reaction to Sirius Black, is set apart from the magical world. It's that his view of Sirius Black is the exact same as the rest of the magical world. Yeah. No, it's true. And the whole magical world has convicted Sirius Black and is sure he's a bloodthirsty murderer who should be imprisoned in Azkaban and essentially tortured by demons who will meet in the next episode, the Dementors. Is that unreasonable of them to assume? I mean, there seems to be a preponderance of evidence that Sirius committed this crime. No, it's not. It's not unreasonable, but just... Um, he does not... We actually don't actually, ever really actually, see no. this. Yeah. He doesn't get tried. No. Or if he gets tried, it's a closed trial, and it's before, like, maybe the Wizengamot and maybe just, like, a single Wizengamot judge. Yeah. This book in general is going to be a really good opportunity to talk about wizard criminal justice because, like, spoiler alert, it's fucking bananas. It's the worst. And you're right that Uncle Vernon does kind of align himself with a certain kind of wizarding attitude about like there's no need to ask whether or not he did it like they've got the right guy he's not actually worse than cornelius fudge i think in this case serious being centered in this narrative so early is amazing because unlike the problem that we've had in past books where the forces of evil or our understanding or interpretation of the forces of evil have been kind of sprung upon us later on and you don't actually get to learn a lot about what you're dealing with until like the second half or like the last third of the first two books here like you're contending with the face of evil like from the very start so I think it deepens the conflict in this one that's one of the reasons I think this one is genuinely much better even than the first two which if you guys have been listening you know that we we love the first two books but I think this one like it sets its stakes right away right yeah Sirius is this looming presence and that is so satisfying every step of the way in this book the outcome is so immensely satisfying I cannot even begin to tell you and we are not going to talk about that yet even though all of you know what happens like I actually do want to hold off on that particular spoil because it's like such a good ending but so then we do learn about wizarding Sirius what Sirius actually did on the night bus which uh do we have any thoughts about that right off the bat um I actually had kind of a fucked up thought yeah it says a lot about the contemporary muggle world that we live in that 13 people at once 
not actually that shocking anymore. I think it'd be shocking in a place like the United Kingdom. Where in the U.S.? Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. When I saw 13 people, I thought, oh, well. I was like, that's how many <laughs> people died multiple times in mass shootings, like, this year. Yeah. Yeah. No, I um, I, th- I thought about that. That's such a horrible it, thing that I thought. Know? But I was like, the world has changed so much, even from when J.K. Rowling wrote this book, that seriousness crime has horrifyingly ceased to be that shocking as a reader. Ugh. I know. That's really dark. And I'm sorry I said that. But one of the first thoughts I had was like, I mean, 39 people just got gunned down in Istanbul last night. It's really upsetting to contextualize this crime and be like, that would be like a manhunt, but that wouldn't be the biggest manhunt in history. Right. Uh, There's also the moment that was interesting in the Daily Prophet story. So Fudge has come under criticism for informing the Muggle Prime Minister. Mm, Yeah, this part is interesting. About Sirius' escape. And this is one of the more laudable things Fudge does. He tells the press that, of course, the muggles have to be informed. Like, black is a clear and present danger to everyone. But then the prime minister has to, the, the muggle prime minister has to inform the muggle press that Sirius Black is armed with a gun, which the Daily Prophet describes as a metal wand that muggles use to kill each other. And it's very disdainful and dismissive, like those muggle savages. But every wizard carries a gun, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You know what I also think is interesting? Going back to Fudge informing the Muggle Prime Minister about Sirius Black. A thing that actually really never gets discussed in this book or in conversations about Black's alleged crime anyway is that he actually only killed one wizard. I mean, the Muggle victims of this crime get kind of erased. And you actually see, I think in a kind of oblique way, you see a lot of the wizard bigotry that exists toward muggles because there's zero discussion. The only victim you learn about later on is Peter Pettigrew. Right. There's zero discussion of the lives of muggles lost in his crime except to like emphasize the number in order to sort of underscore how dangerous and psychotic he is. But people are like, you shouldn't tell the muggle prime minister. And Fudge is like, he killed mostly muggles. Right. So it's just an interesting view. And it's actually... It's kind of an interesting analog to something that I think the muggle press, our press does, which is definitely elevate the lives and stories of victims of certain crimes over the other victims. I mean, I feel like this Istanbul killing is a really good example of there was wall-to-wall perpetual constant coverage, and with good reason, of um, the nightclub shooting in Orlando. And it sounds like it was almost exactly the same, same kind of attack and it's big news, but it's not big news the way that that was big news. Right. So I actually think it's a really interesting analog of how yeah. of how victims of crime get erased if they're not a part of the community that you most easily relate to. It's a rare good moment for Fudge as well, it's I true. think. Yeah, no, it's a really good moment for Fudge. And he's like really, he's. it's funny how dismissive of he, he is of the critics. He's like, yeah, obviously I fucking told him it's really dangerous. Yeah. So. Well, and then also in this scene as you know, he sees Stan Shunpike reading this news clippings. And then as the night bus is speeding along, he's asking how the muggles don't see them. And then Stan dismissively says they don't see anything. They suck, basically. Yeah, like, which is a weird interpretation of like, we're magic. Yeah, like fuck muggles. Yeah, well, we won't talk about this too much. But like Stan, like becomes more hard line in yeah. that particular view. But, you know, you get to you, you see a bit more. You definitely do. And uh, Harry has every reason to hate muggles, but 
he never develops that. Uh, he doesn't develop that particular yeah. prejudice. Anyway, um, moving along. Let's talk about Aunt Marge. Aunt Marge. So like you said, she does this thing that everybody weirdly does to Harry. Yeah. Which is be like, your parents were no good Nicks and what happened was the right idea for them. Yeah. They met the end they deserved. Always fucked up. But this time she goes way harder than most people have gone. She goes into this horrible kind of like eugenics theorizing about the breeding of human beings and this whole something wrong with the bitch, something wrong with the pup. Very, it's actually not that different from how wizards view the world. It's again really deterministic. She basically says like if there's bad blood in him, there is nothing that you, Vernon, and Petunia could possibly have done to like right the wrongs, like, you know, forgive the sins of his mother and father. All you can do is basically like beat him into submission. Horrifying thing to say about a human boy. Yeah. But I I want to talk a little bit about, oof, some people are going to hate this part. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about identity. Okay. Because an interesting thing for Harry is this, I guess, kind of the idea that like the personal is political. There are, I think there are three sort of small scenes preceding the big literal blow up of Aunt Marge. <laughs> and J.K. Rowling does this incredible job of building the tension between Harry and Marge. They're incredibly uncomfortable and like high octane scenes. And the thing that she does really well is establish this psychological conflict whose stakes for Harry are just as high as the more traditional good versus evil, Harry versus Voldemort conflicts that usually end these books. And I think the point that she manages to make with these scenes are basically Harry's major battles center on his identity and center on the assertion of self in a world that is trying to reject that self. So in book two, we see this with his battle over whether or not he belongs in Gryffindor. And that battle comes to really profoundly inform whether he, or how he ends up defeating Tom Riddle. So like she does this beautiful turn where this personal internal struggle with identity becomes a tool when he's able to come to terms with that identity becomes a tool for him to defeat evil. And in this book, Harry's relationship to who his parents were and what they mean about his self. In this book, the identity questions that Harry is asking have a lot to do with who his parents were and in particular who his father was and what that has to do with who he will become and what he is capable of and what his future will hold. That conflict, I think, really comes to define the showdown toward the end of the book and also just becomes really important in Harry's development of a self. So I really like that she allows one of the central tensions in these early scenes, and I think throughout this book, to be a, an identity struggle. And his personal struggle with whether his parents were good people, what it means for him to defend them, what it means for him to be their son, is also a really political struggle because it becomes a really central part and it sort of like boils down into 
his struggle against the forces and the belief system and the morality of Voldemort. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of one of the things I was thinking. I think she writes really compellingly about identity and about the formation of identity in young people and about how adolescence is fundamentally a time of asking yourself who you are and what that means and how important it is to defend that. Because this is the also the first time that Harry like really lashes out at yeah, a statement like this. That, that's what I was starting to, that's what I was thinking about when I was reading this. These chapters are really formative because it is the first time he's really defended himself against Uncle Vernon and then of course Aunt Marge. Uncle Vernon tells him to behave himself. Harry says, I will if she does. And I, they're just really instrumental in the development of Harry's character. I think it's interesting that his assertiveness starts to come out, but his assertiveness is a little bit out of control. Right. In the way that a teenager is testing his own power. Mm-hmm. It, and it's not even magical power. It's just his, like, what can he get a, not get away with with other adults, but, like, I don't know. He's coming into his own as a young man i also think it's a what can he get away with yeah he wants to test he wants to test those those limits him blowing up aunt marge is actually a really good metaphor for i think a pretty common adolescent experience of like the first time you like really cross the line with a grown-up right i think some people have the experience of like the first time you curse at a parent or the first time you really really tell a parent like get out of my face, like, you're not in charge of me. I am my own person. And it's interesting because that is a pretty scary and a pretty violent moment, even if it's a less horrible moment in your personal life. Even if it's less fraught. Right, even if it's just, even if it's with a loving parent who's going to forgive you, I feel like the first moment that you're just like, fuck you, mom, which I think a lot of kids have, like Mm -hmm. a, a time when they lose control of their ability to just let shit happen to them. Right. And I think it's a really good moment for the consequences of that kind of line crossing. Because he's pushed back against Dudley in book two. He's, you know, he's pretending to cast spells and then he gets, but he still has this kind of deference to Aunt Petunia who makes him do all these crazy chores after he's threatened to curse Dudley. Right. But, you know, yeah, in this book, he's really, like, he's sassing Uncle Vernon. He has no fucks left to give. Yeah. Which is great. Which also makes sense because he's squared off against Voldemort twice. Right. And he's even sitting there in his bedroom thinking, man, I'm lucky to be alive. (laughs) Which is a crazy thought for a 13-year-old to have to think. But he's also like he's developing more of a self. And he's deciding. He's making this really fundamental and vital young person's decision, which is like what moments are and aren't worth me defending myself over right. like when do I speak up and he's he's pushing at that line and it's actually I think it's really good that he doesn't get punished for it I mean I think that works really well in the plot right because that would ruin the book oh yeah well but also be over. Be like, and then Harry Potter lived as a fugitive for the rest of his life but he also gets he doesn't get punished for doing the right thing which honestly blowing up Aunt Marge is 100% the right thing in this moment yeah I also like how he's He's out on Magnolia Crescent and he's panicking and he's imagining his life as a fugitive and just formulating all these crazy kind of 13-year-old plans like, okay, I'm going to 
wear the cloak on a broomstick. I'm going to withdraw all my money from Gringotts and... <laughs> I'm just going to go on the road. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm go just into like, hiding. <laughs> you should probably... Like, just call the Weasleys. Like, they'll yeah. come get you. And then he immediately gets busted by the literal prime minister. Yeah, it's true. So one more thing about Harry's kind of coming of age in that scene. J.K. Rowling does a thing that I think is so funny. I cannot stand it, which is... I think there's a lot of not very subtle masturbation imagery in those scenes. And in the movie, too. Well, in the movie, he picks up on what's in the text. Right, right. So, but we'll talk about that when we do the movie version. Movie Mini 3. Um, so first of all, yeah, he's under the covers. He's like doing something he's not supposed to do and he hopes he doesn't get walked in on. With the flashlight. But... I think that one is less funny than the fact that every time he comes close to losing it in front of Aunt Marge, he has to imagine his his broom repair kit that Hermione has given him for his birthday. <laughs> and it's, to me, it's such a perfect analog of like thinking about baseball so you don't like prematurely ejaculate, <laughs> which is such a trope that I can't, I can't imagine that she does it by accident. Now this one here... She jerked her head at Harry, who felt his stomach clench. The handbook, he thought quickly. This one's got a mean, runty look about him. You get that with dogs. I had Colonel Fubbs to drown one last year. Ratty little thing it was. Weak, underbred. Harry was trying to remember page 12 of his book, A Charm to Cure Reluctant Reversers. It all comes down to blood, as I was saying the other day. Bad blood will out. Now, I'm saying nothing against your family, Petunia. She patted Aunt Petunia's bony hand with her shovel-like one. But your sister was a bad egg. They turn up in the best families. Then she ran off with a wastrel, and here's the result right in front of us. Harry was staring at his plate, a funny ringing in his ears. Grasp your broom firmly by the tail, he thought. Every time he's coming close to, like, ahem, losing control, he has to be like, think about Quidditch, think about Quidditch, think about Quidditch. Broomstick handles, broomstick handles. I know, which, first of all, like, that's some homoerotic BS, but, like, in a nice way. He gets a broomstick handle polish kit. Yeah, he has to, he's just, he's just up there polishing his broomstick handle. It's just, that's like really easy. But I think when he sits there and he has to like calm himself down by thinking about Quidditch, she can't be doing that by accident. No. Like that's a really, really exact, you know, like call out to this hilarious trope of adolescence of like think about baseball. I just think that's very funny. Excellent. Yeah. Good stuff. Here's a quibble. Why? Tell me why. Do they need a permission slip to go to the candy store? But like... Not to go to Hogwarts or fucking play Quidditch or battle Voldemort. Well, my theory is I think the Hogsmeade permission slip is implemented because of Sirius Black and specifically against Harry. But I don't haven't think... kids had to do it in the past? That's never referred to. It doesn't seem like this could be the first year for it. Otherwise, like, the Weasley twins would be like, oh, mer, mer, mer. It's never been like this before. Yeah, but why would they care? It's just a fucking form. Mrs. Weasley and Arthur just sign it. Like, oh, like, little change. They oh. wouldn't have had a problem with it. Because, you know, McGonagall, Harry's like, well, later in the book, Harry's like, McGonagall, please, like, come on. You know my thing. 
And well, he does like, that with no, with Fudge in this one. He's just like, can you just sign my fucking form? You're the president. Yeah. And he's like, nope. Yeah. That's why I think, yeah, because Fudge won't, Fudge won't do it. And Fudge wants to curry favor with Harry Potter. I But get- he's protecting Harry Potter from, the whole point is to protect Harry Potter from being murdered by Sirius Black. But later on, the form still exists. They have to keep, like, he has to sign the form the next year. No, he doesn't. Yeah, Sirius signs it for him. Yeah, Sirius signs it at the end of, says he'll sign it at the end of this year. He doesn't have to get a new one signed? I don't think they have to get a new one every year. I don't remember. I don't know. I think it's, I don't know. I kind of think it's implemented because of Harry. Hmm. I, Maybe. That's my way around this plot hole. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, why do you need a permission slip? That actually makes sense to me. Otherwise, it's a super stupid plot hole. It doesn't make any sense that you would need a permission slip to go to Hogsmeade. If anything, Hogsmeade is a thousand times safer than the castle. Yeah, when they're like, oh, let's pull out mandrakes whose cries can kill you dead. Or like, let's give you detention in the murder forest. <laughs> or let's play murder ball. Yeah, I I think it's a bureaucratic invention designed specifically to protect Harry Potter because everyone knows Harry Potter's family situation. Mm, and they know he won't be able to get an official guardian to yeah. sign it. That's just a guess. Just a thought I had when that's I was trying a, to figure this out. That's a really good guess. Because Fudge, I think is, I might, Fudge is so squirrely about it. I think I might operate under the assumption that you're right because otherwise it drives me nuts. Dumbledore would totally do that it's, too. It's so true. Oh my God. Rather than just tell Harry the goddamn <laughs> truth about what's going on, yeah. Dumbledore would like create. But it's really stupid because in that way, like, and th- this is another thing Dumbledore knows, like he's just making Harry less safe because there's no way Harry is just going to not go to Hogsmeade. Yeah, but Dumbledore knows that. Dumbledore assumes that Harry will break the rules for a good reason, probably, or something. No. Kind of, though. I don't think Dumbledore cares about Harry's safety. No, he totally does. Well, he wants Harry to live. No, he's guiding Harry on... Whatever. Dumbledore is tripping 24-7. All right, the night bus. More wizarding infrastructure. Here's a really funny thing about wizards. They have come up with, at this point, like a dozen transportation methods. They haven't managed to make a single one of them even kind of comfortable. There were no seats. Instead, half a dozen brass bedsteads stood beside the curtained windows. Candles were burning in brackets beside each bed, illuminating the wood-paneled walls. A tiny wizard in a nightcap at the rear of the bus muttered, Not now, thanks. I'm pickling some slugs and rolled over in his sleep. You have this one, Stan whispered, shoving Harry's trunk under the bed right behind the driver, who was sitting in an armchair in front of the steering wheel. This is our driver, Ernie Prang. This is Neville Longbottom, Ern. Ernie Prang, an elderly wizard wearing very thick glasses, nodded to Harry, who nervously flattened his bangs again and sat down on his bed. Take her away, Ern said Stan, sitting down in the armchair next to Ernie's. There was another tremendous bang, and the next moment Harry found himself flat on his bed, thrown backward by the speed of the night bus. Pulling himself up, Harry stared out of the dark window and saw that they were now bowling along a completely different street. Stan was watching Harry's stunned face with great enjoyment. This is where we was before you flagged us down, he said. Where are we, Ern? Somewhere in Wales? Ah, said Ernie. How come the muggles don't hear the bus, said Harry. Them, said Stan contemptuously, don't listen properly, do they? Don't look properly, either. Never notice nothing, they don't. 
like Stan Shunpick pours Harry's hot chocolate all over his bed because the bus lurches from like one city in Wales <laughs> to not, another and they're like, not secured. Um the night bus is clearly stolen. What do you mean? Ernie can't drive it. It says Ernie hasn't mastered the steering wheel yet. Oh, you think they're like on the lamb? No, no. They jacked the night bus, repainted it. Oh, like from Muggles. Yeah, lettered it on lettered the night bus on there. And then they installed candles. And beds. Candles are in the night bus because they don't know how to make electricity. Like, a light bulb. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, it's true. It's a it's like a combustion engine bus with candles in it. Right. <laughs> but also, really, think about the ways that wizards travel. They there's this is such a wizard technology like thing where they prioritize highly complicated and totally unnecessary magic over like it's so it's like I'm be, I'm sounding really Silicon Valley, but there's nothing like elegant about any of the ways that they transport themselves. Can some wizards not apparate? Maybe there's reasons maybe that they can't sometimes. Like maybe if you get like a lot of the people in the night bus seem to be really old. Or and wasted. Maybe, or fucking drunk. Yeah. But no, like maybe you like lose the ability to operate as you age. Yeah. Like the way some old people like can't drive anymore. You just like, you kind of right. lose that magic. Yeah. Uh, the night bus <sighs> kind of weird. Also, it's overpriced. So. Oh, yeah. Enchanted Economics. Part two. Part two. So the night bus costs... 11 sickles for a basic ticket, which we've calculated to be roughly $79.75. That's that's not a fucking bargain. It's $94.25 for a hot chocolate. So, like a $15 hot chocolate. Wow, even in New York, that's overpriced. It's $108.75 for hot chocolate, hot water bottle, and toothbrush. In your choice of colors. So It's weird that that's a feature. That upsell is insane. A sickle is not... Especially when... There's only like a few sickles in the Weasley's bank account when they go to Gringotts. I also have to say... Maybe the night bus is actually upscale. I think it's really cute that Harry buys hot chocolate. But then he doesn't even get to drink it. Yeah, I know. But I like that he pays the upsell because <laughs> he's like, you know what? Yeah, I could use a hot chocolate right now. Is Stan Shunpike paid on commission? Oh, I don't know. I don't know either. I There seems to be no... The, the other thing that's funny is like if you get on like a Greyhound... Like, there's a company behind that. Like, there doesn't seem to be any <laughs> corporate entity backing the night bus. It's indie. It's these two crazy people. Like, there isn't okay, any... Ernie does not seem to be the owner of the night bus. Okay, Stan might be. I mean, who no, owns Stan it? No, Stan is not. Who owns it then? Is there a night bus corporation? Because there's only them. Like, there's not a bu- there's not a fleet of them. There's a single night bus. Who knows? It might be like Safe Ride or some... You know, campuses have these Safe Ride programs... Where yeah, you but get a safe ride, ride home is free. And, uh, yeah. Safe ride, you don't have to pay $80 to get a ride home from a frat <laughs> That's house. That's true. Wow. No. So it's even worse Uber. Oh, yeah. It's like surge pricing's on 24-7. Also, there's candles in your car. <laughs> and the guy can't drive. It's one of the, it's another one of those things where they rely so heavily on magic that they don't develop basic skills. Right. Like, regardless of whether buildings jump out of your way, like, maybe learn to drive. <laughs> Just for, like, the comfort of your passengers. Wizards have no interest in comfort, which I think is really interesting. Like, no muggle would fucking stand for the night bus. Would you rather take the night bus or flu powder? Flu powder's faster. Yeah, And you don't true. have to talk to fucking Nazi Stan Shunpike. <laughs> He's not a Nazi yet, I guess. To come later. He uh, does become a Death Eater. 
I always thought the night bus would be nice because, yeah, you got hot chocolate. But now I realize it's a $15 hot chocolate. So well, also, like, you don't get to drink your hot chocolate. Stan spills it on your pillow, so you can't use your <laughs> bed or drink your hot chocolate. No, the night bus is terrible. Wizards need one better way of traveling. Actually, the Hogwarts Express is pretty nice. But that's just fucking muggle technology. Seems like the night bus would be faster if they just got a fleet of those. They can, like, zip from Wales to London in Yeah, also, like, what spell is it, and why isn't Hogwarts Express doing it? Like, it's, it's like, they're only using magic on certain things. Maybe it's proprietary. Oh, it's, like, a Night Bus LLC, like, magical spell? Proprietary charm that no one's figured out? Do they have proprietary charms? Like, do they have, like... In the U.S., we would certainly have proprietary charms. They have, like, IP laws for magic. Yeah. They have, like, intellectual property that's, like, I'm the only one that knows how to do the jump from Wales to UK, or to jump from Wales to Scotland charm. I don't know. But in the U.S., we would have that. Oh, my God. Sure. There would be patent trolls of magic. Yeah. Wow. L- literal trolls, though. <laughs> patent They would just, like, live under, the, under, under a bridge and literally hoard physical patents. <laughs> yeah, it's a very funny image. Sketch. Yeah, sketch idea. Who's your unsung hero? Mine is Tom, the innkeeper. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, he's chill, I guess. He does his job. One thing I worry about Tom, it says that Tom is toothless. Why is he toothless when they can regrow bones? <laughs> Health insurance, man. They're like, sorry, Skelegro only works on bones, not teeth. But teeth are no, he probably just doesn't get good health care. A dentist is going to have to, like, correct me. Your teeth are, like, part of your bone, your skeleton, right? Yeah, because... Are they, are they a discrete thing? Why do the jawbone... No, teeth are different. Regardless... They don't have tooth to grow, though? It seems like they would. No, I think it's probably just they have, like, a tiered health care system. Oh, my God. So Skelgrow is, like... Expensive. It's like an EpiPen where they keep jacking the price up or whatever. Like, yeah. Skelgrow is, like... $10,000 a bottle now well, it's one and of those only Hogwarts like, has it. <laughs> do you, I feel like I when I was in college, I was just like, let me go to the doctor all the time. It's on campus and it's right there. Gonna get medicine. And now like never. Right. No, like school medicine. Because you're on like campus health. Because you're on like campus health, right. So like they're on like Hogwarts health and like as soon as they graduate, like they're screwed. So Tom just can't afford like Dentigrow. Yeah. Also, like, there's that, you know, there's that mean stereotype about British people's teeth, which she's just, like, playing into, I guess, a little bit. Anyway, go Tom. He brings some crumpets. He seems like a really good innkeeper. He seems like a nice man. He knows who Hedwig belongs to and, like, puts him in the, puts Hedwig in the right room. Yeah, he's, like, right smart owl there. Yeah, good stuff. Potter, who's yours? Uh, Mine is Errol. Errol. Because, like, man, he's doing his best out here. He, like, consistently collapses during deliveries, but he never just refuses to go. That's such a great comic moment when Hedwig and the Hogwarts school owl are, like, propping him up. They have to perform, like, an airborne rescue of Errol. (laughs) Hedwig somehow, like, finds Errol, and Errol's like, bro, like, I'm not doing great. And Hedwig's like, okay, like, we're gonna get you through this. It's very, like, wartime. Something about the image. Anyway, Errol is a good owl, even though he's, like, he shouldn't have to be making deliveries anymore like retire errol maybe spend part of that 86k on a new owl or like eight new owls it would be great (laughs) if everyone in your family individually could send mail yeah how much is an owl i don't know not eighty six thousand dollars. oh my gosh the 
communications technology. Ron can't use the phone in these chapters. Oh my god, we didn't even talk about that. Ron That's gets such Harry a funny horribly scene. in trouble because he attempts to call Privet Drive. And, and he's he just screaming into the phone. Into the phone. But then I love then Uncle Vernon's reaction is to just scream back. <laughs> and so then it becomes like a feedback loop where Ron thinks he's doing something right because that's how the person <laughs> he's talking to is responding to him. He's like, oh yeah, no, okay, this is how we do it. Cool. If mm. Uncle Vernon had just quietly been like, excuse me, what are you doing? Ron might have understood, but Uncle Vernon has no control over his temper. So he's like, who the bloody hell is this? And Ron is like, oh yeah, okay, we yell. I love owls, but it's a horrible way to communicate. No, it's awful. Use the telephone. Oh, my God. Just pick... I don't know. Yeah, muggles don't see nothing. They can just instantaneously talk to each other. I don't know. Without using trained animals. (laughs) All right. Uh, The owls are incredible, though, because Hedwig can understand everything Harry is saying. I know. It's, like, along the same lines of, like the cats where they're clearly not normal muggle cats or they're clearly not normal muggle owls like they're special it's in some way better lassie what's that <laughs> okay. jenny's stuck in the chamber of secrets lassie i don't know lol the well more the end anyway this week's episode is brought to you by the night bus 80 dollars a ticket hope you can afford it <laughs> <laughs> The audiobook clips you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, and they are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Get that audiobook. I actually, I have listened to this book on audiobook, I would say upwards of 200 times. This is like the that one. many times? Yeah, this is the one that I bought when I was a kid, and I just listened to it every night when I was going to sleep. I remember like every word of this book. <laughs> so if you're going to get a single one of these audiobooks, I highly recommend Prisoner of Azkaban. Do it. Um, rate and review on iTunes, please. We're stuck on 27 ratings. So bring it up to 28 this week and make it a five star if you are so inclined, which I really, really hope you are. That would be lovely. Also subscribe so that you get the podcast consistently. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Quibbler Podcast. We also have a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash Quibbler Podcast. That has also been less consistent than it should be. But again, we've been on sort of semi-vacation for like Christmasing. two weeks. We've been so New Year'sing. We're back for real now. Yeah, man. We're heading into 2017. Going in strong with Prisoner of Azkaban. Yep. Thanks, amigos. Goodbye. Very smart owl you've got there. Arrived about five minutes after you did. If there's anything you need, Mr. Potter, don't hesitate to ask. It's been a very weird night, Hedwig.